Silke, it's a delight to, to have you here today and to be able to talk to you a bit more about some of the questions we've been exploring in the workshop. And I suppose I might start with the, the second question I ah. actually gave you, um, sort of thinking about your current work on museums, memorials and heritage sites. Um, and I, I, again, we've talked a lot about the question of empathy, this very problematic mm. question mm. of empathy. Um, and I was wondering, first of all, how, how important is empathy as a response? And mm. what, what are, what are, could you give some examples of effective strategies that are used at particular sites to, to evoke empathy in the visitor? Mm. It's quite a vast question. It is quite a big question. Um, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to say that you will find uh, the, the term empathy um, in a lot of museum material you read about. And if it's not explicitly in, in the material itself, it's often in sort of mission statements from museums that they talk about the fact that they really want to enhance empathy in museum visitors and memorial visitors. So this is where I picked up um, this, um, the aim for a lot of museums and memorials to enhance empathy in visitors. Um, and I was a bit puzzled by the fact that it was necessarily seen as um, a good thing and a goal in itself, I suppose, mm -hmm. that it was taken for granted almost that empathy would enhance understanding, would enhance uh, being open to other people, um, and that it would sort of uh, also enhance a kind of pro-social behavior. Um, and I felt this needed to be interrogated a little bit. Um, and I, I don't really think that teaching people to be more empathic is, is necessarily um, a way of making them understand about uh, violent pasts. Um, uh, I think if people are just empathic, um, they will always be so selectively. That is, they will be able to turn their empathy on and off. Um, so they shine it like a spotlight, uh, maybe onto an individual or a group they feel very uh, close to, or they feel that they are deserving of their empathy, but it will always exclude others. So um, there will always be the problem of exclusion. Now, if the violent past you're remembering is uh, a past that uh, was based on exclusion, I, I think there is a sort of a, a paradox there or a conundrum. Um, rather than teaching people more, more empathy or be, being more empathic, you should actually teach them what it means to exclude other people. So processes of exclusion and dehumanization, what is going on there? And to be sort of self-critical and uh, interrogate what we do when we become implicated in such uh, processes. And to some degree, we're all implicated. In, you know, if it's everyday racism, you know, none of us is completely uh, sort of out of these processes. And so I think that this is, is actually much more helpful to engage with the limits of, uh, of what empathy can do, you know. What can we realistically ask uh, of empathy? And to put safeguards in place to counterbalance uh, uh, the limits of, of empathy. So when we talk about ethical principles, convictions, human rights, international humanitarian laws, these are all things that we need 
that uh, might sound very cold and detached, but it is a way of counterbalancing the fact that we often are only compassionate with people who we think they belong belong to our own group, mm -hmm. or we think uh, uh, we recognize as part of ourselves of ourselves and our communities. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that idea of selective empathy, I, I find. Mm particularly fascinating. Mm. Um, but again, I wonder if you could give an, any sort of specific examples of, of where that really stands out in some of the sites that you've worked mm. in. Mm. I mean, what I, for example, of course, testimonies are always a powerful mm. way of, um, first of all, making you see individuals and testimonies, video testimonies are used in Holocaust memorials yeah. and museums. Um, but they've now also, uh, you can see them in other museums as well. Um, now, what you do if the past is so long ago that there was no film, there, you know, there, there, there might have been written testimonies, but not filmed testimony. Um, so uh, one of the examples I've worked on was the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool. Right. And they used actors to... Uh, basically reenact video testimonies um, and that was interesting so first of all they thought people wouldn't respond in the same way to written uh, testimonies so they wouldn't necessarily take the time to read them um, so they created video testimonies and um, you could you enter a small room and you have a projection of an act, obviously an actor who's telling you uh, what she experienced or what she witnessed. And uh, on other screens in the same small room, you see these um, narratives being played out. Um, so that is obviously a very powerful way of drawing you in because you are basically meeting an individual and you're, you're, you, you're not just asked to imagine something, you see it played out on the screen. I remember at the, the Liverpool Slavery Museum as well. They had they had the film the the men in the in the slave ships. Yes, the, actors, the middle passage. Um, yes, and trying to give you some sort of sense of what that must have felt like. Yes, yes, that is another yeah. e another example, yeah. which is a, a difficult space because mm -hmm. it's sort of two semi circular uh, screens. And as you, if you feel uncomfortable and try to back away from one of them, of course you're, uh, you're just approaching the, the screen behind you. And they're basically in the form of a ship. So it symbolizes the, the ship that, uh, t that uh, took the enslaved, enslaved people um, across um, the Atlantic. But um, the problem I have with it, I suppose, is that one of the responses uh, quoted by the museum as a successful response was uh, a white Liverpudlian uh, middle-aged woman uh, saying in response to the video testimony, the kind of uh, performed video testimony, um, where the, the, the witness was recounting uh, her story of uh, a mother um, whose daughters were sold on to other slave owners. And the, the, the visitor's response was, um, how awful, um, I, how I imagined this would happen to my daughter and, and her sm a small child, and I felt that this is absolutely awful. Now, the two responses I have to that is, 
Oh, she, she only felt it was awful because she imagined it to be, to be happening to her own daughter. And then, of course, what you completely miss out on if you see it in that way um, is the process of dehumanization that goes on. This slave owner might have had empathy with, other, with his own family members or with his neighbors, but he didn't have any empathy with the enslaved people. And so the process of dehumanization uh, along racial lines, something that is still isn't over and done with, mm -hmm. but something that is ongoing, is not being understood if you simply put your own daughter in the place of that enslaved woman. You don't understand anything about racial uh, stigmatization or dehumanization. Mm -hmm. and, but that's the core of the problem. So in a way, you completely uh, you miss understanding what, what is actually going on. And by not understanding what's going on, how can you then take that on board for your own life and for your own behavior. Yeah, yeah so how can we provoke empathy that's just a starting point that looks to, you know, that works towards further action and changes in our own lives? And that kind of helps you to understand that you are not in that situation of this woman because you're white and you're not treated in the same way because this treatment was a long, uh, you know, was a, a racialized, a racialization mm -hmm. and and so you are not in that situation you know it's it, it by 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 putting yourself by pretending that you could be in the same situation mm -hmm. uh, it's a misappropriation of uh, not just of a victim status but it it kind of misses the point of what is happening in why this person was uh, why somebody thought they could treat this person in that way uh, and why they were allowed to treat that person in that way. Mm. It also has a legal uh, dimension, or had at the time a legal dimension to it. Mm. But obviously the, the legacy of, um, of that we can still see uh, around us, you mm. know, with uh, um, what's going on with race discrimination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I suppose the question of legacy is... is is extremely important um, to the discussions around commemoration more broadly that we've we've been having as mm. well. Um, and I, I I remember in the past we've talked about the example of um, Pinchas Guter, so the, oh, yes. the Holocaust survivor who has um, so they've now made a, a hologram I mm. of him where he's telling his story and visitors can interact with the hologram. Mm. Um, and so, and I was wondering, I suppose. One of our broad questions is thinking about the future of commemoration. And I, was, I wanted to, uh, this will be my, my last question, mm. but um, I was wondering to what extent you see, well, what implications does this sort of, this, this new technology, these new uses mm. um, of, of the past have for the future of commemoration? And, and to what extent do you see it becoming a user-driven experience? Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of what looks like user-driven commemoration might probably better be described as a participatory commemoration. Mm -hmm. um, the audience is, of course, not passive. They become part of the commemorative performance uh, in reaction that might look as if they are not prescribed, but um, I think to some degree they respond to more or less subtle guidance. Um, so... Um, in terms of the example of the, the, the 
the hologram of the Holocaust survivor. It's, it's of course, a project that was developed at the Institute uh, for Creative Technologies at the University of Southern California in collaboration with the Shoah Foundation. Um, and this project, which is called New Dimensions in Testimony, the aim is to extend the powerful emotional experience of encountering a survivor beyond their lifespan um, by producing these holographic simulations to enable a conversation-based testimony. Uh, and it's actually now uh, uh, in place in the Holoc Illinois uh, Holocaust Museum in Skokie um, since last October, uh, really. Um, but uh, the, I think, again, there is a problem um, because to some extent it is a user-driven experience, um, but it is obviously only a simulation of an, an interpersonal encounter. The computer program does not really react uh, it's, a, it's a database, uh, its database is activated through voice recognition. Um, its algorithm offers uh, differential responses to certain types of sound patterns. And the voice recognition is just sort of activated by external stimuli. And it neither understands or, or nor does it engage with the person asking the question. It searches for structural matches between the database of Pinch's verbal memories and the specific words mm -hmm. that are spoken by the users. Uh, and then the algorithm selects the appropriate memory story from the database and replace the performance for, from the testimonial video capture. So the hologram doesn't ask us to listen to his story, um, but, it's, it, it, but just to search the database according to our interests and our questions. And the, the problem is that the more a certain question is repeated, and some people talk about it as the money shot of memory. So for example, what was your most traumatic memory? Uh, uh, the, what happens is that the algorithm sort of learns from that and will use standard responses that address just these aspects. And the more that question, the similar questions are repeated, the more and the more the algorithm always selects the same answers, the more these pathways become the dominant ones. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the material will be filtered out and in the end you will be left, you will be left with um, only a, a, a very pared down um, version of what, what this rich testimony uh, in actual fact was and that it is a problem because it is user driven and if it's uh, if we always ask the same question and if this question is not about historical contextualization or about precise details it will always sort of revert to kind of very general uh, answers that will then be reinforced again and again and again so it will actually narrow down um, what we can know about the Holocaust, mm. which is a worrying thought. Yeah, so rather than this idea of uh, the user-driven experience extending what we can know, uh, unfortunately, at least in, the, in this specific instance, it has completely the opposite effect. Yeah. So we certainly need to be aware of the, the dangers of being reductive and, and exactly. narrowing our focus and understanding of the past. Yeah, absolutely.
Well, thank you very much. It's I have many more questions, but I, I think we'll, we'll stop there. Pleasure. Thank you.